Listening to IASA's additional coverage podcast, episode number 25. I'm your host, Tim Hicks, and joining me for today's additional coverage, I'm pleased to welcome the co host of the Crossing Thin Ice podcast, Max Rudolph. Good afternoon, Max. How are you? Thanks, Tim. Uh, one thing I do want to make sure we, we point out is that, you know, that anything I say today is not investment advice. So, a quick disclaimer on that, but I'm happy to be here. Great. Now, Max is with Rudolph Financial Consulting. He is a credentialed actuary and has been active in the asset and liability management and enterprise risk management space for many years. And that's important because our last few podcasts have been on ERM. Now, when we're thinking about risk management, one area that we cannot ignore is geopolitical risk. And that's our topic for today. But first, before we dig into that, I would like to recognize and express my appreciation for all the support that we receive from IASA's member companies and volunteers. IASA is the voice of the insurance industry. If your company is not already a member, I encourage you to consider all the benefits that come with membership in IASA. The annual conference, IASA Exchange, begins on June 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We invite you to come and explore all of the educational offerings. Find out more at IASA.org. Well, Max, I think that this is really a very timely discussion. It seems like there's so much generalized unrest globally. Uh, Insurance companies need to know how to look at and plan for what's turned into really pretty rapid changes. Where do you think our biggest risks are? Well, I think uh, what I I would do is is think about it in terms of scenarios. And, And the way I would talk about it would be what I call narrative scenarios which uh, some other people have, have talked about as well. But instead of just looking at one risk at a time, it's it's more coming up with a, a broad concept that, that goes across the economic, environmental, and geopolitical spectrum, and then comes up with a scenario that has consistent assumptions between all of those. And so what I would throw out is is three different ones today, and they, they co- kind of cover a, a broad range so they're not meant to be these are the only three but just to give a flavor for different directions that we could we could discuss sure the first is the one that people talk about a lot with geopolitical risk right now is a potential war in in asia primarily built around taiwan uh, and the semiconductor industry there but i think there's also a risk any place that china would want to get passage out to the pacific you know, so they're looking for those coastal lands. So I think Vietnam would also be another one that would be at risk. The Philippines, certainly, you could form a blockade around the Philippines. And Australia has a, a, a multitude of resources that I'm sure China would like to have access to. So I, I think that's one that, that would be out there. A second one would be more typical for an insurance company would be formed by by leverage. You know, so either at the the Country level, you know, the U.S. debt to GDP ratio is 130% roughly today. And, and historically, you know, going back centuries, the problems start to happen when you get up above 90%. The timing is never certain, but anytime you're above 90%, it seems like eventually you have a, a problem with the default or, or currency devaluation. I think the U.S. gets around that a little bit for now. And the reason why we've been able to get so far above that 90 because we're we're dominant militarily and and we're the reserve currency. And 
especially since there's there's no other country challenging us for reserve currency that that helps us to do a, a lot of things that we shouldn't be doing if we're really thinking about it but it also comes back to to companies you know we've got a lot of zombie companies that they were able to compete at the low rates that we had but they're really technically insolvent as the government subsidization unwinds and we're just starting to see some of those start to uh, uh, become show up in the media in the Wall Street Journal today. So going forward, we need to have creative destruction. That's what's necessary to avoid the moral hazard of these companies that are out there that really aren't functioning companies. They're they're really just out there because they they can be and and they're able to to use it to continue to pay management salaries and things like that. So that's the second one. The third one is is a little bit obscure for most people. But since we just went through uh, the COVID pandemic, I, th I think it's really appropriate for today, especially given the way in the United States that we reacted to the COVID pandemic. And, and that's a, an Ebola or Marburg virus outbreak. You know, Ebola and Marburg are both much more lethal than COVID or influenza would be and affect every age. And it's not going through the air. It's, it's going through touch. But if you touch the blood, you're probably going to get sick. And the death rate is very high on these. But it's also a reminder that every scenario doesn't have to be quantitative. You know, some of these scenarios can be qualitative, thinking about, well, how would I react to this type of an event? But you also don't want to shut people out. Going back, I was talking about influenza pandemics in particular back in 2004, 2006, when I had a couple of papers come out and, and I was pretty much ignored. And then you know, I wrote a paper in 2015 talking about low interest rates that we really didn't react to very well at all either. So you want to maintain contact with, with people who think about tail risks, even if you make decisions with them having a seat at the table, not necessarily making the decisions. At the same time, you want to avoid extreme scenarios that just serve to distract. So somebody says, oh, you know, what would you do if an asteroid hit the Earth? Well, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm dead. So are you. Right. You know, why, why would we plan for that? You know, nuclear proliferation is another one. There's a lot of value in governments planning for that. But for me as a business owner, it doesn't make much sense. The example that I've used in some classes that I've taught is the example of the BP Horizon disaster, where the oil platform blew and you had a, a major oil problem down in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, if I'm in charge of risk management for a shop that's selling T-shirts on the beach, yeah, that shut me down because the tourists stopped coming to the beach. But at the same time, I can't plan for that. You know, I have to just accept that that's, that's a risk out there. So insurers have both assets and liabilities. One of the things we've fallen into before in the past is that we look at one or the other. We need to look at both and, and how they work together. We need to also look at it, especially the uh, concentrated positions, whether it's geographic distribution or, or asset class, and, and then think about our risk appetite just to determine where we should hedge, where, where the company's comfortable and where the company's not comfortable, really to think about what could go wrong. And that kind of defines a narrative scenarios. What could go wrong and what should I do about it? Sure. And what they're willing to accept or not accept. Yes. This podcast is being recorded in mid-April when Fort Lauderdale has just been inundated with floodwaters. Australia just recorded the highest sustained cyclonic winds in history. 
it, it brings up the question of climate change and its associated risks. Warmer oceanic waters obviously lend themselves to more intense hurricanes and other convective storms. How does climate change factor into geopolitical risk? Well, it's big, and especially in, in terms of uh, an insurer, it comes in from the time horizon perspective. Rewrite policies, uh, some are short-term, like car insurance and homeowner's insurance, and others like structured settlements and, and life insurance can go for, for quite a few years. But even on the, on the PNC side with the short business, we're typically writing or buying asset classes that, that have time horizons that are longer. We're buying equities or we're buying commercial mortgages or, or residential mortgages, that type of thing. So the assumptions for pricing assets and liabilities need to be stable over the life of the product sold. We've had a 10,000 year run of stable temperatures that has really come to an end. And, and we're accelerating uh, right now due to climate change into an environment that we've not been in before. And so it requires a lot of, lot of separate thought. It also, climate change acts as a threat multiplier. The Department of Defense came up with that term, but it's very appropriate. It interacts with other risks. You know, you look at the, uh, the Fort Lauderdale airport being completely flooded over the last few years. My brother was stationed at Langley Air Force Base, which, which shares the airport in Norfolk with the public. And it's regularly, you know, they call it king tide in, in Miami. But in Norfolk, you, you have flooded runways pretty regularly just in the natural course of events. So if you're looking at institutional investor and you're buying a 30-year mortgage in Miami or New York City, you got to think about, well, is that going to pay out 30 years from now? Is, is a house that's built on the coastline of, of Miami going to have any value? You know, the commercial mortgages we just saw with Signature Bank that went under partly because they, they had a large commercial mortgage portfolio and had a dominant concentration position in New York City. But now it's interacting with the work from home scenario. And, and how does that play out? So it goes, it goes beyond just climate thinking about environmental risks. It comes back and impacts economic risks and things like that. I mean, one of the things I worry about is that you'll have melting glaciers in, in Eurasia across the mountains, and that'll cascade into fresh water shortages in those areas, and then regional conflicts, and eventually forced migration. People have to go somewhere. And unfortunately, what's currently happening in Syria is, is a model for the future, and we've got to figure that out. But another thing to worry about is that if you spend money fixing broken infrastructure and mitigating events like sea level rise, which are important, that means there's less money available for other things like health, helping, you know, improving people's health, paying for education, and all those things reduce demand, which also raises socioeconomic inequality. And, and always out there is the increase in food insecurity that's tied to all these things. And all of these, if you put them all together, they could very easily lead to a deflationary environment, which is another problem for insurers. I, I do have a quick comment that I want to make on, on ESG, the environmental, social, and, and governance, as it relates to climate, especially so the environmental side. The, the current insurance regulations from the NEIC and TCFD really don't do a lot to help. It's a start, and I think that's how it's viewed, but you know, you can say pretty much whatever you want, and the questions that the NEIC asks are more, are you doing something? 
yes. It doesn't say, are you doing a lot or a little or what are you doing? It's not really helpful in terms of being able to uh, solve the problems. So institutional investors like insurers, we can be an important part of the solution, you know, but there's going to be a transition. It's not a yes, no. It's not a, if you own a pipeline or you invest in a pipeline or have a bond for somebody who runs pipelines, that doesn't mean you're bad. It just means you need to be thinking about how does that play out in the transition away from fossil fuels, not necessarily just, oh, I'm I'm a good investor or I'm not a good investor. It's 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 not as simple as as some other issues. There's a lot of gray in climate change. Just keying off of something you just said, the NEIC, their their disclosure requirements are next to nothing, a lot like it is with cryptocurrency. Do you have any exposure to cryptocurrency? Yeah. Okay, great. Tell us what it is so we can make sure we not admit it. But anyway, I digress. The IFRS, on the other hand, is implementing more strategic disclosures, I guess, and those will make their way into U.S. regulatory policy too. But are these really, all these risks, are they really immediate? It feels like some of these may be a long way away, either by time or location. Is that really reality? I mean, why should someone in the U.S. insurance industry really care? Yeah, the the time horizon, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, I'm not going to go under tomorrow. You know, if I'm going to buy, go back to my example of the 30-year mortgage, do I do I buy the 30-year mortgage and then say, oh, I need to worry about that 25 years in? You should start planning today for for the risk that's out there that is is tied to the period that you need those stable assumptions for. So the lifetime of the asset, the lifetime of the liability, that type of thing. In addition, you know, we need to be thinking about all these things because we're part of a global economy. Commodities like interest rates and oil prices, those those rates are set internationally. We don't set those in a vacuum. And and there's repercussions if we if we try to subsidize one thing or another. There's all kinds of unintended consequences that we find out about. You know, those isolationist policies. We found that they just don't work in the long run. If we if we go back to pre-World War II, you know, you see a lot of instances where we can learn from, you know, where where we let Germany and Japan in that instance kind of do what they wanted to do. And, and then it made the job harder for the Allies to win the war uh, later on because you essentially had to reclaim the coastline of Europe because you'd already given that all up. So... You know, today, if if we leave China or Russia to to conquer their neighbors, they become much stronger. And by adding access to oceans and and resources, it really plays in in their favor. So I I think we need to to learn from those pre-World War II experiences. You know, the other thing is that global GDP is expected to fall by, by 50% over the next 50 years relative to the last 50 both in the U.S. and China and, and other developed countries. You know, a lot of that is tied to demographics. We're aging, we have fewer kids. You know, there's a lot of things going on, a lot of moving factors. Really, the only growth in the world after about 20 years from now is, is sub-Saharan Africa. And that changes how everything ties together. The insurance industry is going to need to adjust to survive. And all these things impact asset portfolios, and they impact the liabilities through the discount rate. We saw high loss ratios last year for car prices because of the inflation rate, primarily. That's something that's also tied to international trade. 
So there's there's lots of things out there that are thought-provoking that we've traditionally looked at scenarios one assumption at a time. And I think it really would make sense for us to try to take a step back and spend some time thinking about these longer time horizons and the geopolitical implications of what's happening in the world today and figuring out, okay, if this happens, we're going to be set and ready to, to be able to adjust. And that's what makes asset liability management such an art form. Yeah, ALM and enterprise risk management as well. This is shaped up to be just as informative and interesting a topic as I hoped it would. But that's about all the time that we have for today's podcast. But hey, Max, if uh, our listeners would like to reach out to you, what's the best way they can get a hold of you? Well, I think the best way is just to reach out to me on LinkedIn, or I also have a Twitter account at Max Rudolph. And then, uh, you know, the Crossing Thin Ice, we do that in concert with Actuarial Risk Management. So you can reach out to actress.com as well. Oh, awesome. And if you have any comments about the show or any show suggestions, you can always email me at tim.hicks at fisglobal.com or complete the submission form on iasa.org. In our next episode, I will talk with interested parties leader Charlia Taft and chat about preparedness for regulatory exams. So until then, I'm Tim Hicks with today's guest, Max Rudolph. Max, I really appreciate you sharing your time and expertise with us. Take care and be well. Thanks, Tim. That was a lot of fun. We did have some issues with Apple Podcasts not getting our podcast, but I think we have that resolved. So now you should be able to find this podcast anywhere that you get your podcasts. So if you enjoyed this episode, please do us a huge favor. Subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss a new episode when it comes out. If you have coworkers, colleagues that also need to know about this podcast, let them know so they can follow along as well. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.